The revolution will not be televised, but we're not on television. This is Hell live from our studio, above a pool table, in a bar. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show, Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko-Smith. Today, we're going back to France to find out what has happened with the yellow vests since our last report on the movement 10 months ago, back in February, when we spoke with Cole Stangler. You can hear our interview with Cole at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on Stangler, S-T-A-N-G-L-E-R. We also spoke with Jacob Hamburger about the yellow vests last year, and you can hear that conversation at thisishell.com as well. But apparently a lot has happened with the yellow vest movement since we last covered the story. There have been continued protests with barricades blocking commercial and industrial traffic as roundabouts have become choke points for France and capitalism. The Yellow Vests continued their demands for fiscal justice, including a return of the wealth tax, the elimination of which started the whole protest. Well, that and new labor laws that undermine worker rights, including making it far easier to fire workers. The Yellow Vests also demand President Emmanuel Macron's dismissal. The movement despite U.S. media claiming the yellow vests are opposed to fighting climate change, has actually politicized ecological issues. Their successes have shown how occupation has become the leading and most effective political protest and organizing strategy around the world today. We'll learn all about the history of the yellow vest movement, which just celebrated its one-year anniversary when we speak with Ethics, a pseudonym for a student and member of the Paris-based platform Denquette, Militant, the collector's article at Viewpoint Magazine, which was also published at Notes from Below, is titled Back to the Future, the Yellow Vest Movement and the Riddle of Organization, the Uprising of the Yellow Vests and its Persistent Tenacity mark a point of no return, in our opinion. This is a before and an after the Yellow uh, Vest Movement, at least in Europe, and in terms of class struggle. You can find out more about their group at Plate. N-Q-M-I-L. That's plate, P-A-L-T-E, N-Q-M-I-L dot com. And of course, we'll have the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. This week's question from L is, why did you suspend your presidential campaign? Why did you suspend your presidential campaign? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or... Send it via direct message to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. The person with the best answer to this week's question wins a copy of Charles King's Gods of the Upper Air, How a Circle of Renegade Anthropologists Reinvented Race, Sex, and Gender in the 20th Century, which we featured in an interview with the author earlier on this week's show. You can hear that interview at thisishell.com, and we suggest you do because Charles's book is definitely going to make our favorite books of 2019 list, which we are announcing during during next week's shows. Alex, do you have more listener answers to this week's question from hell? 
Yeah. Why are you suspending your presidential campaign? Luis D says, I want to be loved for what I am, not what I could be. <laughs> Joe S says, to experience my angst in a state of, of, of complete immobility. <laughs> Borky B says, Alzheimer's. Okay. Uh, Dennis H says, the Twitters were mean to me. John K says, it was the numbers. And finally, Mark C says, to spend more time with my family and then drive some nails into my skull. <laughs> that is fantastic. That is fantastic. Uh, of the other answers that we've read up to this point, I really liked MG's explanation of why he's suspending his presidential campaign because he's joining a hardcore band with Beto. Uh, Sebastian's saying, it was revealed that I was nothing but a horde of rabid weasels in a trench coat thinking about running as an independent. Mark's answer uh, that uh, Vlad Putin just offered me a better job as president of Germany. That's good. Uh, Breeden's uh, suspending his campaign because Baby Yoda is a shoe-in. Why bother? I love Bernie Sanders being referred to as Baby Yoda. At least I assume that's who it is. It's not a mean thing about Amy Klobuchar or something. And Frank's reason for suspending his presidential campaign of future dirt, all the bad stuff I intend to keep doing, is prescient. So you got to like Frank's response as well. Keep listening throughout today's show to see if you've won Charles King's book, Gods of the Upper Air, How a Circle of Renegade Anthropologists Reinvented Race, Sex, and Gender in the 20th Century. I'm going to put that right over there so I can keep score on what is the best answer to this week's question from hell. So far this week, we had an outstanding conversation with Charles King about gods of the upper air. And if you have a right-wing reactionary who denies science because science does not support their racism, this is the book for them or for you to give to them during the holidays. The father of modern anthropology, Friends Boaz, proved scientifically something that does not go over with the far right, and that is all humanity is the same. We are not determined by our race, sex, or ethnicity. In fact, race is a fiction, and that really pisses off the right. Sure, they want to be post-racial, but not in a way that eliminates discrimination or embraces equality of all humankind. No, they want to erase racism as an immoral act. They want to end being called racist, but not actually end the racism from which they benefit through their white privilege and superiority, which they cherish. So yeah, want to get a book that will really piss off that forever Trumper in your life? Then get Charles King's God of the Upper Air, How a Circle of Renegade Anthropologists Reinvented Race, Sex, and Gender in the 20th Century. Then on yesterday's show, we talked to award-winning author and media analyst Ann Nelson, author of the new book, Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. Ann revealed this network of far-right politicians, Christian fundamentalists, and plutocrats that is trying to usher in theocracy, eliminating what democracy we do have in the United States and replacing it with a divine God-given rule by the wealthiest elites. And the name of that network is the Council for National Policy, an organization whose name you will never hear on any of the corporate mainstream media outlets. And his book, or her book also explains all those unexplainables the media keeps asking, like, how can Christians back Trump? And why did rural blue-collar workers support Trump when all of his and his party's policies are detrimental, not only to their supporters' bottom line, but to their well-being. It all comes back to the downturn of journalism, the disappearance of newspapers and local radio stations across the United States, and an infiltration and invasion of nationally syndicated far-right Christian conservative radio show hosts who spread lies purposely misinforming their audience in order to promote theocracy. 
So if you missed our interview with Charles or Anne, they are available right now again at our website, thisishell.com. All of which brings us to our guest, live from land stolen from the natives, this is hell. The Yellow Vest movement doesn't get much press coverage here in the United States, which is too bad because the movement is having great success and others could learn from that success. Here to tell us what's been happening with the Yellow Vest movement and potentially what other activists around the world can learn from them, Ethics is a student and a member of the Paris-based platform Denquette Militante. The collective's article at Viewpoint Magazine, which was also published at Notes from Below, is titled Back to the Future, the Yellow Vest Movement, and the Riddle of Organization. Welcome to This is Hell, Ethics. Hello, Chuck. It's great to have you on our show. You can find out more about uh, Ethics Organization, again, platform Denquette Militante, which uh, you can find at their website, Plate, P-A-L-T-E-N-Q-M-I-L.com. Your group's statement starts the uprising of the Yellow Vests. The Yellow Vests are the Mouvement des Gilets Jaunes, and its persistent tenacity mark a point of no return. In our opinion, there is a before and an after the Yellow Vests, at least in Europe, and in terms of class struggle. Now, the way the movement was covered here in the United States and is no longer discussed on any of the major news outlets is that it was a right-wing rural French movement about people who were upset over the French government fighting climate change through an increase on gasoline taxes. That's the simplistic definition of how it was being covered here. So, is or was the Yellow Vest movement a right-wing movement? Well, uh, first, uh, thanks for the question, because I think it's something really important and something that will be at stake, like, um, in all these... um, uh, a movement that have to deal with uh, climate issues in a, a broad sense. Um, I get that uh, in the beginning, you you had uh, like in the Yalvis movement uh, activists from the far right, but I think that uh, this movement has um, has passed this uh, this first uh, step. And uh, it is due to his uh, like uh, organization. And nowadays, I think that uh, the movement uh, has um, fairly uh, broadened and open to um, radical uh, discourses. And also, uh, it was really linked uh, to the very strong uh, police repression that was uh, used by the government uh, against uh, the movement. So... I guess that, uh, you know, the, the far right in France uh, always take the, 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 the side of the police. So it was pretty difficult for the Yellow Vest uh, to, to continue on like, allying with a far right activist uh, vis-a-vis uh, uh, of the, the police uh, and the police repression especially. So it is or was the Yellow Vest movement ever opposed to fighting climate change? No, I think that uh, the the main issue of the Yellow Vest movement was about uh, who has uh, has to pay for um, uh, climate change policies. Uh, Because like from the the Kyoto Protocol, the is, uh, in 1998, the the main idea of uh, like uh, capitalist policies about climate change was that uh, polluting has to be paid by uh, polluters, and that somehow you had uh, to uh, it's 
uh, it was at the time some kind of capitalizing on uh, pollution. But the yellow vest, what they said, it was uh, something different. It was like um, we have to use our cars to go to work, to uh, like to produce and to reproduce our workforce. So uh, the the yellow vest movement never really. Um, opposed to climate change policies. Uh, it's opposed uh, to climate change policies uh, as uh, policies um, from the summit, uh, and uh, they proposed uh, climate change policy from below. And the idea of um, uh, the Gilets Jaunes has always been to uh, put in the front the idea of uh, social justice linked to ecological justice. So the idea that uh, these two uh, watchwords cannot be separated uh, one from, from another. Uh, for example, one of the um, uh, very important slogans of uh, this uh, movement was in French, uh, uh, fin, de, fin, du, fin du mois, fin du monde, même combat, uh, which means uh, end of the month, end of the world, same, same struggle. So the idea was to uh, link more broadly uh, ecological issues to uh, uh, social and uh, also political issues, I think. So has that made it more of a movement that is not just right wing or not just left wing? Has that made the movement far more heterogeneous when it comes to its political beliefs? Uh, I guess that uh, the the movement uh, is uh, uh, very uh, the the heterogeneity of the movement is is really important because you had like uh, really important uh, geographical uh, heterogeneity uh, in the sense that uh, in north of France in the roundabout of north uh, from north of France south of France you had totally uh, different uh, like um, political uh, positions, uh, we, we have to say this, but also totally different uh, modes of uh, organizing. Uh, it's, uh, the, the heterogeneity of the movement is also important because uh, it opens the movement to uh, lots of uh, uh, different uh, alliances with uh, different uh, organization or uh, bases. For example, you have like uh, in the east of France uh, alliances uh, with, uh, of the Yellow Vest movement with like um, uh, the bases from the, the trade unions. And, uh, for instance, uh, I mean, in the more uh, rural uh, spaces, you have like uh, problems of uh, uh, ecology that are more uh, are at stake. Uh, I guess like you have um, the opposition uh, against uh, building uh, e uh, hydroelectric dams, for example. You have various uh, uh, geographical situations that are also linked to uh, uh, social composition of the movement that uh, is uh, uh, really heterogeneous also. Uh, some comrades in France uh, called the, the movement uh, interclassist uh, at uh, its beginning. I think that uh, it's uh, uh, something really descriptive, uh, but uh, you cannot say that uh, the Yellow Vest movement is uh, something uh, monolithic 
And so that way, the uh, understanding of the heterogeneity of the movement uh, is really important to tackle with because uh, it is uh, also the reason why uh, you you have um, different uh, possibilities for this movement and that uh, the heterogeneity uh, also um, uh, forced the Yellow Vest movement to make political decisions, political statements, uh, to organize themselves and uh, to to put on new watchwords like every every month or maybe every week. So if there are all these different, all these differing uh, yellow vest movements or yellow vest groups, what do each one of these different groups that approach the yellow vest movement in slightly different ways, what do they all have in common? What do they all share? Uh, I think that uh, the, the main thing they share, it's like uh, the the problem of uh, impoverishment that is really central uh, in uh, uh, today's uh, French politics. Uh, impo- impoverishment is understood uh, by many people uh, in France as the consequence of uh, really violent uh, neoliberal politics, um, coming from both French government and also in a more broad way uh, from uh, uh, austerity politics uh, from the European Union. And in that way, I think that what uh, all Yellow Vests share is like the, um, the uh, uh, disapproval, uh, which is a very a slightly light word to say it, but I think that you can say hate um, uh, amongst uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, the French president. So uh, the the problem of uh, impoverishment uh, is shared by uh, a very broad composition in uh, in the French population today, and so the feeling that uh, it's not uh, possible to um, to live normally and to uh, expect to have like a better life in the future is something really important in the Yellow Vest movement. You have all these kind of watchwords of uh, the Yellow Vest, which is uh, taking care of the elderly, because the elderly will be uh, struck by uh, the um, by uh, uh, impoverishment that is going to be stronger and stronger, and also uh, uh, to take care of uh, the children um, who are going to be... Um, uh, uh, we are going to be um, really impoverished in the future due to uh, uh, austerity politics and also that will suffer uh, climate change. Because uh, in this way also, uh, I think that uh, climate change has been um, um, integrated by uh, the, the yellow vest uh, in that way also. So I think that impoverishment and uh, the um, disapproval of uh, Emmanuel Macron's politics uh, is uh, the the core of the Yellow Vest movement. Just today on the front page of the New York Times, there was a story about President Donald Trump being scolded by Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, and they were saying in the New York Times that this was a change for Trump and that this was a change for Macron, and they were really playing this up as a, the first real international challenge to President Trump's uh, bellicose nature. Do you think that that scolding by Emmanuel Macron 
was in any way influenced by the Yellow Vest movement and its impact back home in France? Uh, I think that uh, I, I won't be able to, to uh, answer on this particular issue, but I think that the, the, um, uh, in our political context uh, from here in France, uh, the Yellow Vest movement made uh, uh, something really important on the line of uh, uh, both uh, Macron's politics and also uh, on the side of uh, European politics. Uh, because uh, you had, for example, uh, the, the fact that uh, their influence was important because it was the first social movement uh, that uh, made a, a French uh, government uh, change uh, some, somehow uh, its, uh, its, its uh, politics, like uh, in the 10 uh, or maybe 20 last year. And also at the European level, because we have uh, the the problem of um, the uh, the European budget uh, has been changed, uh, like uh, in the in the realm of uh, the the gilet jaune mobilization. So I think that uh, the situation is pretty interesting because here you have a really strong social movements, and I'm I, I think that. Uh, if it is this week, uh, you have also the the very important influence of uh, the the upcoming uh, general strike uh, uh, starting in France uh, tomorrow. So I, I think that maybe this kind of very massive moment, but not only in France. I, I mean also in South America, in Hong Kong maybe, and also uh, in the Middle East. They could have uh, a really strong influence on uh, the, the governments at maybe an international level, as we already saw it at the European level. You and you and your organization talk about how Emmanuel Macron has. Uh, defied Brussels' golden rules when it comes to the budget from the uh, European Central Bank. Uh, Does France's possibly, does France's defiance, does Macron's defiance possibly signal to other Eurozone nations that they too can be pressured into being more defiant toward the European Central Bank? Has the Yellow Vest movement made it so other nations may consider being more defiant to the European Central Bank? Well, uh, I think that uh, it is something uh, really important uh, today is uh, the, the way this movement are going to, to, to struggle with, uh, uh, like, uh, as you say, the Brussels uh, golden rule and uh, also uh, and this kind of uh, neoliberal policy uh, transnational level. Uh, today, uh, I think that uh, it is uh, possible, but uh, there is also uh, this risk, uh, uh, as uh, as we were uh, speaking about, like uh, in, uh, the um, the presence of the far right uh, in uh, uh, in lots of European movements. Uh, I've heard that, for example, you have uh, uh, nowadays in uh, Sweden uh, a movement very similar to the Yellow Vest one. Uh, which is uh, again uh, against the uh, the uh, the raise of uh, a fuel tax, but uh, which is really politically uh, invested by the far right, and uh, uh, we are speaking about like the Sweden far right, which is uh, extremely radical. 
But uh, I guess that uh, uh, what is uh, really important uh, in the European context, uh, especially, is a question of the determination of uh, this movement by a political organizing, but not in the old way, not uh, in the way of organizing within the parties or within, uh, well, uh, in some in some places it is the case, but um, not in the trade unions especially, but how these movements are going to organize themselves and to uh, determine politically the what is at stake uh, in uh, all this movement, like broadening uh, the, the the watchwords, broadening the problematic uh, of uh, this uh, movement is going to be something really important to create uh, um, uh, a relationship of um, force uh, within the uh, European Union uh, in the next month and years. Your group states, if we want to sketch out a somewhat wild socio-geographic radiography of the movement, we can say two things. From the point of view of social composition, it is not the lower strata of society or the middle classes that are at the forefront of the dynamics of the movement, but rather the social segments in between, that is, those impoverished workers who are going through major downgrading processes of worsening of their social conditions and who see the future in a darker way than they could ever have imagined before the crisis. Internationally, globally, do you believe this class will be the class that will be at the heart of the next revolution, not a group that a group that is not poor enough to be called working class, not wealthy enough to be considered middle class, those in between, those who are fighting in midst of neoliberalism. Do you think that that is the new class that is going to be in the midst of the next uprising? Uh, I, I won't uh, try to be uh, prophetic, <laughs> but uh, I think that uh, it is a, a very strong hypothesis. For example, uh, what we see in Hong Kong uh, this day is uh, something uh, that is also uh, important in that way. You see like uh, lots of uh, students uh, that have uh, really uh, big uh, depth uh, to, to study. Uh, you have... Uh, uh, a process of impoverishment uh, that is uh, uh, directly linked to the the liberal uh, attacks uh, on uh, like this middle strata of the the population. I, I think that uh, the the situation is that um, uh, the the moment the poli the political moment we are experiencing right now is a moment uh, when this class uh, can still um, be uh, in the can still be engaged in this struggle because uh, it uh, in in one hand uh, their situation had um, uh, met a point of no return uh, because they know that uh, the neoliberal uh, reforms uh, are going to to continue uh, uh, especially in Europe, I think it is really important in the consciousness of uh, lot, uh, lots of people. And uh, on, the on the other hand, they are also um, starting to experience uh, problematics that have been um, experienced by um, people from uh, working class neighborhoods, uh, popular neighborhoods. Uh, from the suburbs, for example, in uh, in France, because you had uh, in this uh, in the 
very big sectors of the the French uh, the French territories, uh, really strong police uh, violence uh, against uh, Arabs and black peoples. And uh, nowadays, uh, the Yellow Vest, for example, they experience the same kind of violence during uh, the acts of the Gilets Jaunes, the, the demonstration of the of uh, the Saturday's uh, demonstration. So uh, I I think that uh, the there is some kind of um, meeting point today between. Uh, this uh, new European uh, working class, uh, which is uh, really involved uh, in the, the new forms of capitalism, such as logistics, and uh, this, uh, uh, this, um, this uh, whole strata of the population that is um, involved uh, in this uh, process of impoverishment. I mean, uh, the, the situation is uh, pretty uh, difficult for them, as you could see uh, uh, with the, the the classical definition of the working class, in a way, because when you say that uh, the, the 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 rise of the tax on the fuel is a problem, you also say that it uh, becomes uh, problematic for you to reproduce your working force, which is, I think, the, the well, maybe one of the main uh, definition of uh, uh, what was at stake at some moment, uh, at some moments in the um, in the the class struggles uh, between the working class and capitalists. Your your, so, uh, your group states that the Yellow Vest movement is neither the working class districts. It's not neither. It's not from the working class districts nor the city centers that are most active. But the para-urban areas, the inner suburbs, the diffuse peripheries, i.e. these semi-rural, semi-urban spaces that constitute a limbo from both a socioeconomic and political point of view. And it sounds like the same kind of limbo that the people who are in the movement are in between being working class and being middle class as well. And you write that with regard to the Yellow Vest's subjective composition, this is a fairly old movement. The average age of Yellow Vests being between 45 and 50 years old, with a strong female presence, i.e. women and middle-aged women in particular, still playing a very important role. Is this a revolution of suburban moms? Mm. Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, first, I uh, I am going to to come back on this uh, problem of uh, diffuse peripheries. Uh, I guess that uh, what is really important in this uh, regard is that uh, the the contemporary reconfiguration of uh, capitalism has uh, blurred the uh, the the limits uh, between uh, cities and uh, country, rural spaces and metropolis. Uh, Logistics uh, nowadays is uh, uh, a really important dimension of uh, the uh, both the organization of uh, capital and also of uh, the the space uh, in a more pro in a broader way. So I think that uh, the yellow vest movement is in a way the the political uh, consequences of this reconfiguration. Uh, on the other end, I think that uh, the the presence of this uh, um, 
senior citizens and uh, this uh, uh, and the very important presence of uh, women and also um, it's also very important because uh, it is uh, clearly linked to uh, some uh, um, to, to what uh, the the government, uh, uh, the French government, is uh, today attacking uh, really strongly. Uh, these people, uh, they are um, living, um, for some of them and for a lot of them, uh, a precarious life. And I think especially of the, um, about the, the women in, in France, uh, lo lots, of, uh, lots of women, they have um, uh, part-time jobs. And uh, in that way, it is uh, really difficult uh, to... To reproduce, uh, to, to reproduce uh, their workforce and continue to live uh, decently, and it's the same thing with the old people in France today. And so I think it is uh, a really important point uh, because uh, you know uh, we have like uh, this um, pension uh, uh, system uh, reform that is uh, upcoming in France, and uh, obviously it's going to strike um, really strong the. The old people, uh, because it's a, a, a pension, uh, a pension uh, reform, but also the women, because you have this transition from uh, uh, to uh, sorry, uh, this transition to a point-based uh, uh, pension systems that will lead uh, to uh, uh, the lowering of the pension uh, for the women, based on the fact that they have uh, that lots uh, lot of uh, women have uh, part-time jobs in France, and so I think that this um, this uh, this uh, particular um, uh, categories of the population are really. Uh, um, uh, the, the 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 category on which the government uh, wants to uh, uh, strike the strong the want to strike the stronger. So I, I will say that um, uh, it's uh, it was uh, also one of our first uh, hypotheses uh, analyzing the yellow vest movement. Uh, the fact that uh, yellow vest movement is uh, clearly linked with the problematic of the reproduction uh, of uh, the workforce and the reproduction in uh, a more uh, general uh, uh, meaning. You write that the movement is, in fact, far from over. Is French, is European news media claiming the Yellow Vest movement is over? How is French media, how is European news media handling the Yellow Vest movement? Oh, they, they are totally saying that the movement uh, is uh, is over. But uh, I think that it's a, a difficult line uh, to to state because uh, like I think that uh, uh, from the beginning of the month of uh, April uh, and also in January, in uh, in another way, the the French media told that the the movement was over. But uh, I think that uh, you have like this uh, first um, uh, anniversary of the Gilets Jaunes, uh, which was uh, why we, we wrote this text uh, that was coming at the moment. It was be we, we wrote it before the, the first uh, anniversary. And the first anniversary was pretty a success. And uh, so uh, <laughs> the, the movement uh, is uh, for many people uh, uh, finished uh, like since uh, the month of April, but uh, you have this uh, uh, 
whether you, you consider it to be finished or not, you have a process of uh, politicizing uh, of the, the politicization of the French um, society that is really deep and cannot be, cannot be erased uh, that uh, easily, I think. Your group states that the actions that have characterized the Yellow Vest movement include circulation blockades, also in particularly strategic roundabouts as far as the flow of commodities or the flow of people are concerned, the issue being not only economic blockage but also visibility and exchange with other citizens. Are roundabouts a particularly vulnerable way to stop the flow of the economy because roundabouts are increasing here in the United States. Can activists here in the United States learn from the Yellow Vest movement about the vulnerability of roundabouts? Mm. Well, I think that is uh, uh, the, the, the problem of uh, uh, roundabout. Uh, the problem of roundabout is uh, pretty important in that way. Uh, if you make a, a, like a, a pretty deep uh, genealogy of the uh, movement uh, taking place, place on the uh, roundabout, you have, uh, uh, first of all, uh, the, the, the Arab uh, uprising uh, that were taking on places, but these places were also roundabouts in a way. Uh, I think that uh, the the fact that these uh, the, the movements uh, of uh, these uh, last years are taking place uh, uh, on the roundabouts is uh, linked to the intuition that uh, there is uh, the centrality of uh, circulation processes uh, in uh, contemporary capitalism. Uh, the idea uh, is that uh, the the flow uh, is something central and it has to be blocked. But uh, I insist on the fact that uh, it's also an intuition that has to be politically uh, determined through uh, collective organizing from below. Uh, uh, to be um, more uh, specific, I would say that um, the the movement. Uh, blocked uh, the roundabouts in the, like these uh, diffuse periphery peripheries, in order to block like uh, the, sh- the 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 shopping mall or like the supermarket. But uh, you have also you had also these um, these attention from uh, some of the yellow vest to block uh, really uh, strategic uh, roundabouts. For example, those uh, linked to. Uh, um, uh, logistic uh, lo- logistic warehouses, uh, for instance, the one from uh, uh, Geodis uh, in the in the the Paris region, or uh, the the one uh, from uh, Amazon uh, Amazon uh, or. So I think that uh, uh, this um, intuition uh, in terms of strategy has to be somehow translated into a, a political. Um, into a political strategy that has to be based on a collective discussion uh, of the, the strategic aims of the struggle. An action that your group states has characterized the Yellow Vest movement is the transformation of the classic demonstration, the marches established in agreement with the police prefecture, into a weekly riot meeting in the rich districts of French metropolises where looting of shops can go hand-in-hand with other urban guerrilla warfare with an almost insurrectional content. 
why now? Why did those classic protests change with the Yellow Vests movement? Well, uh, I, the, the, I think that uh, there is two reasons for that. Uh, first of all, uh, we had uh, in France this uh, very strong uh, demonstrations against the labor bill in, uh, two, uh, in uh, 2016. Uh, the repression was really violent at this time. And, uh, and also the demonstrations were really massive. So I think that uh, some, uh, a lot of uh, people in France uh, understood at this moment that uh, classical, uh, the, the classical um, framework of um, uh, French uh, politics, uh, that is the um, uh, trade union front, uh, with classical demonstration taking place, whether on Tuesday or Thursday, they... they these modali- these um, modes of um, of politics, uh, d- they don't work uh, anymore. So, I think that the the idea for for the the yellow vest was that uh, first of all, uh, it's uh, a, a movement uh, that has to be uh, somehow, uh, <laughs> I mean, threatening to the power. So uh, you have to not uh, go to the, the east of Paris, where the, the classical demonstration uh, takes pl- uh, take place, but to go uh, where the power is, I mean, in the, the west uh, districts of, um, of, of Paris. So the idea was uh, t- first to be threatening and also to, uh, to uh, regain uh, visibility uh, for a lot of people, um, and to confront themselves to uh, the one that the, the one that they thought as uh, responsible for their situation. I mean, the, the inhabitants of these really rich districts. And also, uh, if I may add something, uh, it's a really it's a really important moment indeed. The in the, the 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 participation of uh, the, uh, the, the the fact that these uh, new kinds of demonstration that we call uh, in France uh, les actes, uh, the, the fact that they take place here is really important in a uh, like broader historical meaning because uh, we didn't have um, this kind of um, insurrectional uh, demonstration since uh, the Commune of uh, Paris in the, the end of the 19th uh, century. So it's also a reclaiming for the space, saying that, okay, we are like, uh, we, we have uh, in our districts these uh, roundabouts, but now we go to the big roundabout, which is uh, Place de l'Etoile on the uh, near the, the, the Champs-Élysées. Uh, and so Reclaiming the space was uh, something really important to confront the power and not only make like classical demonstration where you hit uh, sausages with uh, the trade unions, which is also good, but uh, it wasn't the, the, the meaning of, uh, of this movement. So uh, another action that your group states has characterized the Yellow Vests movement is the transformation of these blockades into occupations and the proliferation of assembly spaces, which immediately became the focus of the movement's self-organization and places of sociability, mutual aid and solidarity. So have Mm -hmm. these occupations, uh, are these occupations better than marches? Do they make marches obsolete 
well, I think that uh, uh, today uh, it's uh, quite uh, tricky to uh, answer this question because t- tomorrow we are going to have uh, a tradi- t- traditional uh, march, a traditional uh, demonstration uh, organized by the trade unions. But the Yellow Vests are also going to be here. Uh, to uh, uh, participate in this um, demonstration. So we are going to see uh, what an alliance uh, that that wasn't possible last year uh, is going to look like. Uh, I think that uh, the the main uh, hypothesis uh, we can uh, um, suggest at this point is that uh, there is going to be uh, not, it's not possible in a way to come back to a tradi- traditional uh, uh, demonstration, traditional marches. The idea was that, uh, is that um, uh, you have uh, somehow gilegenizing, uh, 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 yellow vestizement, uh, yellow vestizing, I, I don't know how to say it, how to put it. But um, the, the, the forms of organization, the, the practices, they have been deeply changed by this uh, movement. And we see it in like every assembly today. The watchwords of the Gilets jaunes, they have a strong echo within uh, the French society in general. But uh, of course, there is still these problems with uh, the trade union confederations and all these uh, all these things, but I, I think that we are um, uh, going to uh, experience a renewal rather than a return to uh, these uh, uh, classical uh, marches. Your organization has said the movement demands the return of the wealth tax that was abolished a few months earlier by the government and the dismissal of the president himself to immediately turn to address a much broader spectrum of demands. If not Macron, then who? Can anyone save France when the issue is with the European Central Bank? We saw what happened with Greece. Can any nation stand up to the dictates of the Central Bank? Oh, that's a, that's a, it's a, a really uh, important uh, question. Um, I, I don't really know how to answer it uh, uh, in, the, in our uh, political situation uh, right now. The, the problem of the, the central bank uh, uh, is that uh, uh, you have this uh, very strong uh, uh, political um, uh, political plan, political uh, um, political commandment uh, within like uh, the, uh, the the national politics uh, in uh, in uh, in Europe, but in the on the other hand, you have uh, also uh, the possibility. I think, as we were saying earlier, to um, to get involved into a, a broader uh, process uh, that is that has to be linked, in my opinion with uh, international uh, alliances with uh, other movements because i think that uh, the reform the neoliberal reforms we are facing they are not only uh, linked to a particular national context but they are um, applied um, in a broader context in every 
in in different ways, but uh, in uh, lots of uh, national contexts. So I think that uh, the the European question has uh, to be uh, has to be to be to be put in the the forefront of uh, the political problematics uh, the movement is going to face. But uh, it's also it also depends on uh, uh, whether um, on the way the, the movements uh, uh, and uh, especially the Gilets Jaunes movement is going to um, invest uh, these questions. Uh, I think that one of the forces of uh, this movement is, uh, as always, as to. Um, is that uh, this movement always linked uh, the social uh, questions with political questions. Because uh, in the era of uh, uh, European Central Bank and uh, neoliberals uh, politics, you can't, uh, you, can't uh, you can't make a, a strict uh, separation from uh, the political point of view and the social point of view. One final question for you, Ethix. Ethix is a student and a member of the Paris-based collective platform Denquette Militante. You can find out more about their group at platenkmil.com. That's P-L-A-T-E-N-Q-M-I-L.com. Our final question that we ask every one of our guests, Ethix, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. What impact can the Yellow Vests movement have on climate change? Well, uh, uh, okay, it's pretty hard to, to enter in, indeed. Uh, I think that uh, um, the, the biggest uh, impact uh, this, uh, mo- this movement can have on uh, climate change is uh, the, the, the politicizing of uh, climate change problematics. Uh, to, be, uh, to be clear, I, I would say that uh, we, you have all this uh, um, investment of uh, ecology by uh, really non-political uh, organizations um, uh, that is really based on the discussion on whether uh, the decision made uh, by uh, the COP21 or uh, like um, tra- uh, like um, global uh, meetings of leaders are uh, important. And I think that the Gilets Jaunes, uh, especially uh, in their alliances with uh, ecological collective, ecological organization, they have, they have put in the front the, the, the fact that uh, ecology is a political problem and has to be dealt uh, politically. So, uh, well, my, my answer is that it's a really small pace. Uh, obviously, it's not like a, a ecological planification or a, a political solution uh, clearly um, uh, clearly expressed uh, for climate change. But I think that uh, um, saying that uh, climate change is a political problem is um, something really important uh, to to fight against climate climate change, because climate change is not only something really neutral and... uh, 
you know, it's the same thing everywhere. No, you have uh, specificities of uh, spaces, of uh, social categories that are going to be affected by uh, by climate change. And I think that in this way, the, the Gilets jaunes, they made a really uh, a, a lot of progress for uh, radical uh, ecology uh, in uh, our national context. And we hope in a more uh, broader context. FX, thank you so much for being on our show this week. It really was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. I just want to tell everybody, you have to read that article by The Collective. We have a link to it at our website right now, thisishell.com. Again, the article is Back to the Future, the Yellow Vest Movement, and the Riddle of Organization. If any of you may have had any difficulty in understanding Ethics accent, uh, I don't because we have had French Canadian and French people on our show in the past, and I grew up very near Canada, so I'm very used to the accent. Uh, but if you did have any trouble understanding anything that Ethics was saying, you should go back and read that article because the way that he describes how the Yellow Vest movement is organizing, how they're making these assemblies, how it's almost nearly a parallel government to the Macron government, how it's challenging the government of France right now is absolutely fascinating. And you should check out his writing. Again, it's at Viewpoint Magazine, Back to the Future, The Yellow Vest Movement, and The Riddle of Organization. You can also find it at Notes from Below. Coming up, we'll have the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. This week's question from Mel is, why did you suspend your presidential campaign? Why did you suspend your presidential campaign? Leave your response at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us at this is Hell Radio via Twitter. The person with the best answer to this week's question wins a copy of Charles King's Gods of the Upper Air, How a Circle of Renegade Anthropologists Reinvented Race, Sex, and Gender in the 20th Century, which we featured in an interview with the author earlier on this week's show. You can hear that interview right now at thisishell.com, and we suggest you do because Charles's book is definitely going to make our favorite books of 2019 list, which we will be announcing next week. Alex, do you have the rest, or not the rest, but do you have more of the listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Yeah, should I have the rest? No. It's my, are we going to keep this going? Yeah, we're going to do the uh, final one at the end. After Jeff. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you got some time if you're listening live. Why did you suspend your 2020 presidential campaign? Harold J. says, Prince Andy has some dirt on me. <laughs> Rob H. says, it kept falling down at the waist and suspending it seemed like the easiest way to keep it up. Hold on, let me block and mute report that pun <laughs> okay aaron d says the flow of dark money was shut off when it came to light that epstein and i spent a weekend gaming at michael vick's ranch <laughs> but that doesn't disqualify me the public doesn't seem to care financing is back on never mind jack b says it's better to burn out than to fade away oh that's sweet chris s says too tired Aww. and krimsky k says because i have the power and uh we got jeffy <laughs> I liked earlier when we were when uh, Alex was reading the responses. I really liked Mark saying to spend more time with my family and then drive some nails into my skull. That seems to be my leader right now for the winner of this week's question from Hell. Following yesterday's show, I went downstairs to get a much-needed post-show beer. The bar alarm kept going off all morning because the cleaning crew forgot to lock the back door when they left yesterday morning. And idiots like myself kept opening the back door, setting off the alarm. One guy opened the door, setting off the very, very, very loud alarm. And he just kept walking in. He picked out a seat and started getting ready to sit down. No bartender in the bar, bar whatsoever. 
alarms screeching. <clears throat> I'm following him into the bar. I'm the only other person in the bar. And he thinks everything's fine and he'll get a drink. He was like, so, are you open? I was like, no, the bar's clearly closed. The alarm is going off. You've got to go. So I finally reset the alarm and locked up the bar and prepared for the arrival of the police. Officer Murphy was incredibly kind in that way that police are that oddly scares the hell out of you because you don't know what the hell they're up to. To be honest, I I think she just wanted to leave, do a quick drive-by, if you will, realizing there's no crime taking place. But I wanted to make certain to talk to her so it didn't reflect badly on the bar. And so she would not return. There's this whole system that if like a bartender or bar owner calls up the police for any type of crime that they're reporting, that it's actually held against the bar. It's a really weird system. It's hard to explain. After that harrowing experience and Mel, our feral cat, yelling at me all day about who the hell knows what the hell he was talking about, I needed a beer. When I entered the bar, I uh, after the show, a patron told me... Uh, friend of his is a big fan of This Is Hell, and his friend is an artist, and he has a show this weekend here on Chicago's North Side. The artist's name is David Dillinger, David Dillinger, and you can see his art online at daviddillingerart.com. It's pretty cool. In fact, we'll be contacting David soon to see if he'll be part of our annual Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show that happens every July. David's show is happening this Sunday, December 8th, at the Pink Beach House, 7603, 7609, 7609 North East Lake Terrace from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. That's the 2019 Holiday Art Salon featuring the work of David Dillinger, which you can see at daviddillingerart.com. The show happens this Sunday, December 8th from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. at the Pink Beach House, 7609 North East Lake Terrace. While you're there, Go to the beach, or what's left of the beach, as Lake Michigan is reclaiming a lot of shoreline this fall and threatening a whole bunch of lakefront apartment buildings up on the far north side. So go for the art, but go check out the disaster. This is not the media. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show. Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko-Smith. Alex, I know you have. Hefe, on the line. Money-colored glasses. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. One molecule of carbon can stay in the atmosphere for 200 years. If only we'd known that when we were burning all that stuff, right? I'm going to say it, since nobody else will. Well, a few people actually will. A lot, really. I guess I'm going to say it since everyone else is saying it. Humans are toxic to life on this planet. Humans are toxic to each other. Humans are toxic to themselves, but some don't see it that way. They look on the bright side. They have a perennially rosy outlook. There are billionaire financiers, American financiers, British financiers, American-born British financiers out there, and I'll tell you what they do. They sit around at dinner parties, offhandedly discussing how they can manipulate charismatic fascists to whip up hate in their subjugated subjects so they'll fight battles for land so these billionaire tycoon tyrants can, say, harvest minerals or fossil fuels from it. Just, you know, we'll put a little money here, ask a little favor there, the blanks will fight their neighbors, the other blanks, massacre them, take the land for the warlord who's friendly to our projects, and we'll rake in a few hundred million. I know this 
because I have an actual source who was a guest at one of these parties and listened to these creeps chatting away like that without the least bit of discretion, let alone circumspection or shame. No shame, no guilt. Sounds like a healthy attitude, no? You know my motto about ambition? It's the people with big dreams you have to watch out for. You know, like Elon Musk, Hitler, Bill Gates. Forget about the Buddha. These are the people you should take action against if you meet them on the road. People who arrogate to themselves enormous resources and the right to mold society as they see fit, no matter how many suffer and die. They're so confident, courageous, and full of can-do spirit, they sometimes even put themselves at risk. One might, for example get themselves so enmeshed in East European geopolitics that the actual head of a country might order them to leave, and yet this rambunctious megalomaniac will persist in pursuing his territorial strategy to the point someone might comment, one day that dude is going to sit down to dinner and end up eating some polonium soup. A dead sperm whale washed up on the beach in Scotland this week with a quarter of a ton of human-made flotsam and jetsam in its guts. I do know the difference between flotsam and jetsam, and yes, the whale had both. This wasn't microplastic. This was cups and bags, gloves, tubing, strapping, everything you need if you're running a urology clinic, but if you're a whale, it's not so good. It's pretty much the opposite of what you need. It's all our waste, our garbage. China's not going to take care of it for us anymore. They're not going to be the world's recycling continent. And they were probably throwing most of it in the ocean anyway. We should stop fouling our planet. We all know this. We shouldn't have done it in the first place, but woulda, coulda, shoulda. It's hard to behave conscientiously all the time. When I go to coffee, I try not to get a to-go cup. One place, they serve espresso in a nice little ceramic espresso cup with a small glass of sparkling water on the side. An old girlfriend of mine once told me that was the way it really should be served. It's classy or Italian or something else laudable. Another place, I can bring my own cup and they'll gladly put my coffee in that. But sometimes you're over a barrel, as the colloquials put it. Sometimes... On a particular odd job, I have to work odd jobs to support my miscreant lifestyle, which doesn't pay me enough to survive, it'll be a really busy day, and I'm bringing a load of equipment to a job site, so I have to park in the parking structure, and I know I'm going to be there for at least two and a half hours, and I'm going to get thirsty and fatigued, and the cafe at the Galleria stamps your ticket for three free hours of parking with a purchase. I throw responsible behavior to the wind, and get an iced coffee in a plastic to-go cup with a straw. Because I'll be working, I'll be in the flow, and I'll need to be alert and hydrated, and I can't afford for even an hour of their parking to come out of my pay. It's two bucks per 15 minutes, man. Like, I'll receive junk mail, even though I thought I'd opted out of it with a strongly worded letter to whom it may concern. Also, Try as I might to recycle, something always slips through. I have much better luck avoiding running a hog farm, the runoff from which can wreak havoc on animals and plants in the sea, as well as the drinking water supply, and don't even mention the greenhouse gases. Some people just have to run hog farms. It's in their blood. Big, stinky, factory-style hog farms where the pigs wallow in their own feces, 
despite that not being an activity they're naturally inclined to. Some people shoot guns for fun and to practice protecting themselves from menacing paper silhouettes. Some people eat protein bars. Some wire houses for electricity. And every once in a while, everyone but the most off-grid survival Nazi finds they have to deal with excess packaging or worn-out batteries or used paint thinner or dirty motor oil or spent shell casings. And some of it enters the environment, no matter how carefully it's disposed of. You try to be your best self, but you're in the world of human beings. And for centuries, human beings have not exactly designed their world to have the minimum destructive impact on the rest of the worlds, or even on their own world. If you throw a penny in a wishing well, if you take the bus, if you turn on an electric light, even if you light a single candle rather than curse the darkness, you've contributed to global warming. Better you should remain in darkness and curse it, quietly, as far as the health of the environment is concerned. Now imagine you're a wheeling, dealing financier, a billionaire with big ambitions like to corner the market on a toxic, unstable mineral. To do that, you got to fund a government that kills indigenous protesters. And to do that, you got to skirt laws that might prevent you from funneling money to elect legislators that will support you in your bid to label the indigenous inhabitants terrorists. But you want to be responsible about it. You don't want to leave a big mess. You know, not a lot of dead bodies or an environmental catastrophe. I mean, not that's traceable back to you. You don't want to seem like an incarnation of Beelzebub, but sometimes it can't be helped. So you take one-tenth of one percent of your, say, $60 billion, that's a generous $60 million. For a postal worker, that's like paying a parking ticket one time in her entire life. So you take that prorated parking fine and build a few clinics. It doesn't matter where, just so it's near some African people. What the hell? Why not build them in Africa? Make it convenient for them. It's no skin off your nose. You'll only have to visit there once a year for a photo op. That should take care of your conscience, assuming you even have one. And no, money can't buy one. Hey, we're all just doing our best. We're thinking on our feet. And if it weren't for the fact that over the past 250 years or so, we've been polluting the atmosphere until it's a greenhouse canopy of carbon unlike any that's been seen since the Miocene epoch when prehistoric mega rhinoceroses roamed and the earliest primates explored the trees, it wouldn't be so urgent if we dropped a few batteries in a landfill or a few plastic bottles in the ocean or even mowed down hundreds of acres of irreplaceable rainforest or left an entire geological layer of plastic and fiberglass and tin and aluminum that had to be named after us, the Anthropocene, because we changed geological history from a history of salt and molten rock and decaying animal and plant matter and compressed dust into a history of dirty diapers, TV carcasses, and cigarette butts. I mean, really, if we'd put it that way to ourselves in the first place, and some people did put it that way, we'd have known not to do it, right? We shouldn't have done it. Regardless whether it's threatened to wipe out civilization and cause a mass extinction of a sickeningly gross numbers of species, we still should have made sure the rivers were swimmable, the oceans were habitable, the forests were viable, the air was breathable, but profit seems we don't know how to profit from something without turning it into something worse. What doth it profit a man to gain the world but lose the world? I guess we'll find out by the end of the century, unless someone comes up with a big idea about how to change the path we're on and has the power to implement it. But where's the money in that? Most of us look back and see the error of our ways, but not the billionaire tycoon tyrant. 
He sees the industrial revolution and the rise of the entrepreneur and the canny venture capitalist and the gambler on commodity futures and debt futures and derivative instruments, not the women and children dying from emphysema, getting their arms mangled in machinery, men of 34 years looking like they're 80, black lungs, bleeding hands and feet, the sky midnight gray from the coal smoke. Hindsight is 2020. But who needs 2020 hindsight when all you can see everywhere you look? is dollar signs. This has been the moment of truth. Uh, good day. So I was talking to somebody who is very familiar with the manufacturing sector and was talking to someone in the recycling business. And they told my friend that uh, the recycler said, you can't crush cans to be recycled. Those cans immediately get tossed aside. They have to be kept in their original form for the recycling machines to actually recycle those cans. I have been crushing cans for 25 years and throwing them in the recycling thinking that that was working. Apparently that does not work. Now that might just be here in Chicago because the new report had the amount of waste that we actually recycle in Chicago around 6% and a lot of people are saying well that's just because we don't have the, you know, the, the technology doesn't exist to do uh, more recycling. But then in San Francisco their recycling processes what I saw uh, uh, over 80% of what they are recycling. So it just really upset me when I found out I have to leave these cans in perfect shape. I live on the third floor of a three flat. That means I have to bring down my recycling far more times than when I was crushing them. Jeff, you can't win for losing. No, you can't. You know, in Michigan, uh, you take them, them two liter bottles of uh, soda. Yeah. Uh, when, when I'm in Michigan and I'm up north, north of the 45th parallel, uh, I tend to crushed bottles to save space. I mean, those are big, those two liter bottles. And some of them are even designed to be crushed. Right. You know, they have little, some water bottles, one liter bottles. Uh, apparently they won't take the back bottles, that, you know, for, for deposit, even though it's not like they are washing them out. Right. I, uh, uh, God, I don't know. We you can't win for losing, but I have to say, I have to say this, Chuck. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, rectal osculation has been my answer to the to the uh, question from hell for two weeks in a row, and it has applied both times. And I'm going to go for for a third next week or next time, uh, no matter what. I'm just going to say the same thing. Why not? You I know, can't win anyway, right? I'm associated with the show. Like, <laughs> it's, an, it's part of your contract, your very long contract. Uh, so uh, when I saw it this week, I thought I was like, I thought I was having a weird flashback. I was like, wait, I could swear to God this was his answer last week. And I had to go look it up. And I was like, God damn, why does he keep putting up rectal oscillation? <laughs> I think it's going to apply no matter what. That's the new uh, machine that we need to have here as a rectal oscillator so we can, you know. Oh, yeah, you know, if somebody's uh, having a, it needs to be osculated out of unconsciousness. This is why we need more Patreon subscribers. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> All right, Jeff. Oh, I think, I think, by the way, I think uh, the opening of the Axe Throwing Bar here in L.A. is going to be good for This Is Hell. An Axe Throwing Bar? <laughs> yes, I am 
helping open an axe throwing bar. That's the construction I'm working on and the <laughs> websites I'm working on. It's an axe throwing bar. It sounds, I know it sounds dangerous, <laughs> right? We were going to name it uh, Axes, Alcohol, and Accidents, but uh, it was too long. So what's it going to be called? The House of Axe. We've already had uh, some cool parties. There. And you're certain that you're not saying ask and you you have some sort of accent. No, in fact, we're prohibited by law <laughs> from using that that particular mispronunciation in our name because it's cultural appropriation. No, oh, well there you go. So So an axe throwing bar. I'm looking forward to that showing up in rotten history. <laughs> Are you going to well, be? You might have to wait a few years. Are you going to be doing this in a coal mine? So I definitely know, and in the <laughs> south, so I definitely know that it's going to be a horrible story. <laughs> no, no, but you know we're doing it in Koreatown, and we have a lot of uh, undocumented labor. No, we <laughs> our labor is totally document. It's totally documented. Totally documented. Many was, of them are from El Salvador. I was going to. We know that. I was going to ask you if that was the case. All right, Jeffy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Stay beautiful. Okay, I give you a, an osculation on your rectum. Uh, all right, and guess video of that extra bar, please. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Andrew con- Yang threw there. <laughs> did he really? He, he did. He came by, and of course, he threw a little to the right, just a little, low and to the right. <laughs> <laughs> did you see the Gary Hart movie with Hugh Jackman? No, I, what? There is. A, is it a musical? No, but it's hilarious. And he does the axe throwing where that was a big deal with Gary Hart. He had this huge photo op where he threw an axe and his handlers didn't want him to. And he threw a bullseye and people freaked out. And they thought, wow, this guy really is going to win the election. Cause yeah, because, you know, Joseph Momoa axe. is really big on axe throwing. You know how his political career is going. Exactly. All right, Jeffy, stay beautiful. All right, I will. The kind of stuff that starts fights at the dinner table. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today, Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko-Smith. This week's question from hell is, why did you suspend your presidential campaign? Why did you suspend your presidential campaign? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and you still have a chance to win. The person with the best answer to this week's question wins a copy of Charles King's Gods of the Upper Air, How a Circle of Renegade Anthropologists Reinvented Race, Sex and Gender in the 20th Century, which we featured in an interview with the author earlier on this week's show, and you can hear that interview at thisishell.com. Alex, do you have the rest of the uh, of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Yeah, we got two more. All right. Uh, Braden S. says, apparently I needed a foreign policy position on something called BRICS. Who knew? <laughs> and then finally, our own Jeffy D. says... Rectal osculation. <laughs> Again. Yeah, I hope this doesn't become a recurring thing. I really don't want I, this. I get the feeling it's going to be. I think so, too. Uh, so, uh, like I was saying earlier, I really liked uh, MG saying joining a hardcore band with Beto. Sebastian saying it was revealed that I was nothing but a horde of rabid weasels in a trench coat. But I really liked, uh, who was it again? Mark, who said that he wanted to spend more time with his family and then... Drill a nail into his head. What was the answer? Yeah, was, uh, to spend more time with my family and then drive some nails into my skull. <laughs> so, Mark, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. You have won Charles King's Gods of the Upper Air, How a Circle of Renegade Anthropologists Reinvented Race, Sex, and Gender in the 20th Century. All you have to do is send us a message via Facebook, facebook.com slash radio with your mailing address, and we'll get that book out to you. 
as soon as possible. We hope to see you at our weekly Wednesday meet and greet. This is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. It's happening tonight. More than a meet and greet, this is Hell Office Hours is a think and drink. Join us Wednesday evenings for This is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. The bar downstairs from this here studio, meet Mel, our feral cat. Check out our studios. Pick up some merchandise if you are a Patreon subscriber. Don't forget to... uh, Subscribe on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell and get an additional show each and every week. New monologue by me, and we are going to also give you a classic interview from the past, and Alex will be telling you what interview that is in just a moment. Don't forget our annual This Is Hell holiday office party happens on Wednesday evening, December 18th. That's in two weeks, beginning at 6 p.m. and going until some somebody does something awful. Is your office too cheap to throw a holiday party? Make our holiday office party your holiday office party and invite all your co-workers to the This Is Hell holiday office party. Don't particularly like everyone at your office? Then invite the cool kids to this This Is Hell holiday office party. Does your work not have an office and you all work together from your own home offices? Then invite all your co-workers to our annual holiday office party where we promise everyone who attends will get a This Is Hell related gift. Need a last minute gift? We'll also have all of our This Is Hell merch merchandise available. That's Wednesday, December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m. and running until who the hell knows. By the way, if you are part of an organization, a community group that needs a meeting space, the art gallery we share space with above Carrie's Lounge is available for private and public functions. If you need a place to get together with others, a community space, then email me at chuck at thisishell.com and we'll get you in touch with the people who book the space. News that scares the news. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko Smith Alex who's on Monday's one hour live streaming show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time Daniel Aldena Cohen will be on to talk about his contribution to the book A Planet to Win Why We Need a Green New Deal and what about Tuesday's two hour This Is Hell also here at thisishell.com working on my childcare situation to see if it's gonna be one hour or two hour show but uh, for one hour we're gonna have on I'm 99% sure uh, Penn Donovan will be on to talk about her book School is stupid. Notes from the classroom. And do we know what's happening on next Wednesday's show yet? Nah, I'm working on it, though, and uh, hopefully something about Columbia. And we've decided that the uh, Patreon, we're doing Patreon Friday at 10 a.m. That's at patreon.com slash thisishell. Who's our guest? What's the classic interview we'll be playing? Was that John Atlas? Yeah. Yes. So uh, cause that reference, that came up in when you were talking with... Ann Nelson. Yes. Uh, uh, about uh, Acorn. Uh, John Atlas was on a long time ago, 2011, 2012. It was so. about when Acorn was being demolished. Yeah. And uh, talks about how the organizations, the Council for National Policy, that's the network that's behind a lot of the people who are involved in these kind of takedowns of government groups and quasi-government groups that really help out non-government organizations like Acorn that really help out the poor and how they're are being attacked by plutocrats, how they're being attacked by uh, Christian fundamentalists and millionaires, billionaires who are trying to take away the rights of the people. So we'll be playing the John Atlas interview that we did about Acorn. He had written a book about how James O'Keefe had wrongly taken down Acorn and how we were misled into believing that it was an organization that should no longer exist. All right. So I want to thank Alex for producing this week's show, as well as Jonah. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for doing the moment of truth. Thanks to Ethics, a student and a member of the Paris-based collective platform Denquette Militante. You can find his uh, or their writing at 
Viewpoint magazine, and the title of their writing is Back to the Future, the Yellow Vest Movement and the Riddle of Organization. You can find out more about their group at P-L-A-T-E, Plate, N-Q-M-I-L, Plate, N-Q-M-I-L. Also, thanks this week to award-winning author and media analyst Ann Nelson, author of the book Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. You can find out more about Ann at her website, Ann-Nelson.com. That's Ann with an E at the end. Also, thanks to Charles King, author of Gods of the Upper Air, How a Circle of Renegade Anthropologists Reinvented Race, Sex, and Gender in the 20th Century. If you have not heard that interview, please go to our site, thisishell.com, and listen. It blew my mind. And that book will definitely be one of the books that will be mentioned next week in our list of our favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2019. You can find out more about Charles at Charles King Author. Uh, This week's hangover cure is smoothies, or if you can handle salads, scotch pancakes and banana. Also, thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for helping us out with Rotten History. Listening live is better. Bumper stickers should be issued. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've in- introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying these simple words everybody's stupid my demon is on my butt no. uh. my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller uh-huh. and my demon tries to knock me down and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride